Hello, and welcome to another episode of Walk-Ins Welcome. I'm Michael Russell. I'm Gary the Foodie, Gary Okazaki. Hi, everybody. And we're recording in my basement today uh, because my daughter's homesick upstairs. So uh, how have you been, Gary? Where have you been? I went to Singapore, and I just got back a few days ago. And it's such a clean country. You hear, you hear, about, you hear about the country being so clean. It really is. Well, don't they punish you? If yes, you, you do. Throw it, away your gum or whatever. I think it's it like five hundred dollars. Oof. Yeah, that's good. At least do, you're not getting whipped or do, anything. Do right? you know? Oh, do you know what happens if you got you get caught selling drugs? What's that? Death. Oh, <laughs> I don't like that. So you didn't get caught. I, I did not get caught. Uh, I assume you're there to eat. Yes. Was that your first trip to Singapore? Yes. And I was truly enamored by the city i'd like to be i thought about this i'd like to be its culinary ambassador around the world just travel around the world promoting singapore food (laughs) i loved it that much i don't feel that way as much as i love paris or london i don't feel that way about that those cities or i guess singapore's a country but or those countries um i i love my my time in singapore it's a country it's also a city it's both it is it is both and it's an island yeah yeah it's all three it's like it takes an hour to drive from one end of the island to the other, and forty-five. It was like one one way is forty an hour. Then going the other way, you know, going the other direction, it's like forty-five minutes to go the whole island. That's amazing. Yeah, isn't it? So, what was the best thing you ate there? It was the the the, the top three meals was one was number three was burnt ends, and it's a. Uh, uh, it's like an Austra- Australian barbecue place. No way. Yeah, and it's only counter seating. Okay, and it's like really. Energetic, a lot of energy and, and vibrancy, and the, the the dishes were just very straightforward. But um, you know, I, I was just I was enamored by the energy of the place. I've heard Australia has good barbecue. Our yeah. uh, our here in Portland, the best barbecue place is called Matt's Barbecue, and the guy who runs it, he actually spent some time in Australia before. Oh, really? Moving to Portland and worked for a barbecue place there. Awesome. So I guess that's legit. I went to a place called John on the 70th floor of uh, of the Swiss Hotel. The view was amazing. I just ended up staring out the window for two and a half hours or three hours of my meal. But it was uh, straightforward. Oh, not straightforward, but uh, French food. Huh. And um, they did they executed it well. And um, like I said, the view was just so spectacular. I was just I was just mesmerized. And my favorite meal, another French restaurant. God, I just love French food. <laughs> La Semise. From Sebastian Le Pinoy. And um, I don't know, maybe they thought I was a Michelin inspector or something like that. They just treated me really nicely. <laughs> so, Chef wanted you to try this dish. Oh. See how you liked it. So, okay, that was, that was great. It was a scallop dish. And I usually hate scallop dishes, but my scallop dishes, my, my scallop dishes they gave me, or that they sent out, was truly spectacular. And the chef came out, we talked for a while. And so it's, it's, a, it's a two Michelin star restaurant. And so I was, I had a good time. It's almost, I really do like French food. And but, what, how many stars are you going to give it in next year's guide? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the two interesting places was a Paranakan place called uh-huh. Candlenut. Oh, yeah. You know Paranakan food? Yeah, it's the, it's, I believe it's the Chinese-influenced cuisine of Malaysia, yeah, Indonesia, exactly. and Singapore. Right. Have you? Uh, yeah, it was fantastic. It was, it was really intriguing, very enlightening for me. Yeah, that's really interesting. We, we, I mean, it's not like Portland has a ton of it, but there is a, there's a food cart that specializes in laksa nyonya, which is like the signature dish of Paranakan food. And then there's also a pop-up here called Gado Gado that's about to open a restaurant um, that is, by and large, you know, I think the central influence is Paranakan cuisine. Oh, okay. Um, 
And then I went to the least expensive Michelin-starred restaurant in the world. Oh, right. Okay, I was going to ask you about this. So this is a hawker stall, right? Yeah. And what? And, and Singapore is known for their hawker stalls. It's kind of like how but, Por- but, but it's Portland not... has food carts. They have these indoor stalls. What, so but, what was it like? I don't know why it was a, a, I didn't consider it a stall because I, I expected it to be outdoors. Right. And oh, no, I think they're all, they built like buildings to house all these places so they can be year-round. And Okay. But th- they have like stall, like they had like a, you know, like an outdoor market where they sold food. I thought, oh, it'd be there. Right. But no, it's, you're right, like you said, it's inside. And it reminded me just of a Portland casual restaurant place. <laughs> you walk in, you are at the counter, you step to the side, and out comes your food. And this was called Lao Fan Hawker Chan. Huh. And I had the most famous dish with the soya, soya sauce chicken rice. Oh. $3.80 Singapore, three dollars and eighty cents singapore dollars so which ended up being maybe two dollars and eighty cent american wow yeah um did you have a chance to try any chili crab while you were there no i did not okay so any other memorable experiences while you're there um it's just a gorgeous city i mean i went to this um i don't normally do sightseeing but they have a something called gardens by the bay and it's the, they have these uh, they built these like biodomes that house and I, I didn't go inside. I just, it was, I was kind of rushed for time. But I wasn't able to go into these biodomes that house all these plants and flowers and stuff. But it looks neat. I should have. But, but, they, but they also have outs, an outside, uh, outside gardens that were just fantastic. They were beautiful. I'll post on IG, Instagram soon. It's funny that you say you don't go sightseeing. Because when we were in Houston, I talked you into going to the Rothko <laughs> Chapel. So, <laughs> so there's this... Uh, there's this famous artist named Mark Rothko who actually was uh, spent his childhood in Portland, and he's known for these beautiful color field paintings. And in Houston, he made these. He, he had this chapel built, and inside the paintings are just like totally slate gray, this dark color. And I walked in, and I was like, "Well, that's kind of profound. Like you're in this chapel, you expect to see this like religious iconography, and instead, it's like almost nothingness." And we're walking out, and Gary says to me, um, "That was the most disappointing experience of my entire life." <laughs> I'm thinking, "Well, that's it. I can kind of do that. I can play paint some a canvas black, and just I could do that. Can I get a million dollars, ten million dollars for my black canvas painting?" They're well, the same. You know, I'm, there I'm were just... people in there on their smart, staring at their smartphones. So, you know, at least you looked around. Okay. Uh, so the sort of the central thing we're going to talk about today is um, uh, our favorite bars in the world. Gary's got a list. Uh, I'm going to talk about bars just more generally. But um, uh, before we get to that, I just thought we might quickly touch on the results of the Bocuse d'Or. Because we talked about that last episode. And we talked about uh, a very talented American chef named Matthew Kirkley, who uh, was most recently at Qua in San Francisco and was awarded three Michelin stars. And he left that restaurant in order to pursue this famous, uh, very high, very intense, elaborate cooking competition in France called uh, Bocuse d'Or. And so it was kind of wild that he did that in the first place, especially as you pointed out, Gary. Amer- uh, the American team actually came in second two years ago and first last year. So well, it's every two years. So every like two years. three years ago, then so, so oh, no, four, like years, four ago, years ago, then silver. Then. Two years ago, gold. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, well, is America really going to do well again? And well, how do you do? Ninth place. 
Uh, you know what? So, uh, this, th- I t- I'll tie this all in. Um, okay. First of all, let me give you the final results. The top three were Norway finished third and got the bronze. Second was Sweden. First was Denmark. So three Scandinavian countries Whoa. swept the middle round. Where's Finland in all this? I guess I, they, left they, out the they left out. <laughs> but those three Scandinavian cu- countries <laughs> crushed it. Wow. Th- there was another chef like years ago, not that long ago, who left, I think his restaurant had two Michelin stars at the time. He left his restaurant, which he owned, to pursue his book, Who's Your Dream? I think this story's right. I, you know, I should, I should have like just corroborated, just from my, sure. this, but this is from my memory. Right. His name is Rasmus Kofid, and he can, first, first year he competed, he got bronze. Awesome. Oh, but he said, I, I, want, I want gold. Second year, the second time he competed, silver. You thought, okay, that's it. He's going to reopen his restaurant. Nope. He's going again. And that, that third time he competed in the Boku's Dior, he got his gold. That's amazing. The only human being to win bronze, the, silver, and gold. The cycle. Yep. And guess who was the coach of the gold medal winning Danish team? And it was Rasmus Kofid. Whoa. I mean, Kirkley ran into the monster, the, the beast, the one person who knows... Boku's Dior backwards and forwards is Rasmus Kofid. And he led his team as coach to the gold medal. Well, it's interesting because we have this like sense of, you know, uh, Scandinavia being sort of a culinary hotbed. And we talk about Nordic, new Nordic cuisine. We talk about the rest. We had a episode where we, earlier where we talked about restaurants in Copenhagen. But, you know, that style of cooking is really, it's a, like almost very Northwest here in the U S where it's very into foraging and what's local and Bocuse is, I I don't want to say it's the opposite of that, but it's, you know, way on the other side of the spectrum with just every dish is sort of a feast for the eyes. Um, you know, that's so, do you think there's any connection between what's going on there in the restaurant world versus them going one, two, three in Bocuse? Well, I can speak specifically about Rasmus and his... Well, after getting the gold medal, Rasmus went back to and reopened Geranium, and he got three Michelin stars. And when you look at Rasmus's food, it looks like... I mean, it looks like Boku's DR. Hmm. I mean, he's... When you look at Noma's food, you think, oh... And, and Michelin's not supposed to care about the way food looks. But when I look... Before I went to Copenhagen to eat the food. I thought, okay, you know, Rasmus, before he got his three Michelin star, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, Dream's food looks like three Michelin star food. It just looks, the presentations are spectacular. Whereas Noma's food does look like two Michelin star food, where it's more rustic, more straightforward, not as pretty. So at least with Rasmus, I don't know about Finland, I mean, Finland, Finland and Norway winning second, third, but when you, when you look at Copenhagen... Not Finland, right? Oh, um, I'm sorry. Uh, Sweden and Sweden yeah. and Norway. <laughs> when you look, when you look at um, the 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 Danish plates, they looked like they look spectacular. Really? Yeah. So that's Rasmus. If Rasmus weren't the coach, I doubt they would have won gold. Maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? Let's turn quickly to our favorite uh, bars in the world. I don't have nearly the experience you do traveling the world. And checking out some of the places that often get listed in like the world's 50 greatest bars list. But I do have a sense that sort of at that extreme high end for bars, um, there's sort of a tug of war going on 
and it's been going on for some time, maybe, you know, ever since cocktails came back to the fore 15 years ago. And it's between people who sort of look to perfect classics on one hand and people who look to innovate on the other. So there's like backwards thinking and forward thinking. And, you know, a lot of the bars that are more forward thinking, um, aviary in Chicago and New York come to mind. Um, Deadshot here in Portland is, you know, trying to be in that same um, milieu, I guess, uh, in that same world. They look to bring sort of culinary techniques into the bartending world, and whereas the, the people focused on the classics are doing just that. They're going through historical stuff, trying to perfect their technique. I personally, like, m- my gut leans toward the places that are doing classics really well. And when we went to Tokyo, for example, I might we walked into the bar at the Imperial Hotel that I think is on the grounds of a of a hotel that Frank Lloyd Wright actually designed. It survived a major earthquake, and then they bulldozed it and built this other hotel. But the bar itself is sort of like mirrored after the bar he designed, or inspired by him, or whatever. And like we went in there and had a twenty dollar Negroni or whatever, and there was a lot of flair involved in making it. And like to me, that was like even though that was a pretty high price to pay for a drink that I can make at home for literally $2 and I make a pretty good Negroni, you know, that was still like a worthwhile experience for me. Like, where do you fall in that spectrum? Before we get into your top 10 list, where do you fall in that spectrum? Oh, I, I'm most definitely in the more in- inventive and more modernist uh, cocktails. I give uh, more credit to bars that do creative cocktails that just don't do the classics. But my number one bar does both. Uh, they do like barrel aged classic cocktails. There are some creative ones within the barrel aged cocktails, but there's some more. But the, the most of the menu is more creative uh, twists on classics sort of thing. Um, yeah. Well, I, it, for me, what makes a great bar is service. Like most bars provide decent service, but the, the bars that really stand out for me are the the bars that go above and beyond and where and it's very noticeable when they give exemplary service do you what do you think about service and bars oh it's very important and you know the story that a friend of mine always tells is like she went down to new orleans and was at one of the you know sitting in front of one of the famous bartenders i don't know if it was at arno's french 75 or where but uh they had a little like mixed ba- uh, mixed bowl of bar nuts and uh you know whatever and she ate all of the like sesame sticks out of it and like he came around after they'd been there for 10 minutes he took that bowl away and replaced it with one that was just the sesame sticks and she's like (laughs) oh that's a really good eye uh you know or remembering like noticing that someone is left-handed for example and putting the drink on that side like those kind of touches you know if you happen to even notice that they're being done can really make a really remarkable experience right I have my predilections. I like sweet drinks. Yeah, you, know, you drunk with me a lot. Fair enough. I, I love like really sweet, sweet drinks. I love tiki bars, that sort of thing. I don't have a tiki bar in my top ten, actually top eleven. But um, <laughs> you know, I, I, my favorite bar in Portland, as I've said before, is Halle Pile. So it's, I don't really, I don't know. It may or may not be the best. I don't know if I'd rank it number one. It's very fun. It's, but it's really close to being number one, but I just love. It's a hole-in-the-wall tiki going, bar. It's yeah. just great. It's, I'm going tomorrow. <laughs> oh, lucky you. 
<laughs> okay, well, let's dive right into your top 11. Top 10, top 11. Uh, I, I always do a tie. I, I love ties. Number 10, Dr. Stravinsky from Barcelona. Um, again, it was a service that just really stuck out for me. And I have, you know, four words for you. White Elba infused gin. They made a drink for me. They had a, they, they do a lot of fun stuff, a lot of fun infusions, that sort of thing. They said, Gary, try this. And I said, oh, God, that's amazing. So they made me um, like a G&T with a white Elba infused gin. Why do the Spaniards love G&Ts? Do we know that? Uh, I mean, they're bars. They I, I, it's not on my top 10, but Atlas Bar in Singapore, famous gin bar. Huh. Maybe the most famous and best gin bar in the world. 1,100 bottles of gin. Whoa. I know. It was crazy. And it's beautiful. It's like if Multnomah Whiskey Library... It's like 10 times more opulent than t- Multnomah Whiskey Library, which is a local, I guess, fancy, fancy-fied bar in Portland, Oregon. With a huge whiskey selection. Yes. Tied for number 10 is Hon- 28 Hong Kong Street in Singapore. Um, I went through a phase where I like... I mean, I, again, I have a predilection for shandies. I just love shandies. I don't know why. Um, beer cocktails, you know? And 28 Hong Kong Street like got my heart that's funny because you're not a big beer fan i'm generally. not but i love shandies for a while i loved ice cream cocktails i went on portland asking every bartender for ice cream cocktails <laughs> and and 28 hong kong street made just a ridiculously good shandy called the real slim shandy white ale vodka lime peach ginger amaro nanino it was fantastic okay yeah. paradiso barcelona it's hidden behind a pastrami shop and there's this door that's a freezer door but it's actually the door to the to the bar, and so <laughs> cool. um, and uh, my favorite drink there was a tiki monkey, which has some rum, peanut butter, and banana puree. And you know what I've noticed about a lot of high end bars is the the accoutrements on the cocktail itself. Like at a Gibson in London, they put a whole bunch of chocolate like on the cup, and like you grab the cup and like well I grabbed one of the cups and it had like chocolate syrup on it. <laughs> And I got it all over my hand, so I just licked off my hand. And like the Gibson bar is a top 100 bar. It used to be, at one point it was like a top 20 bar in the world. But yeah, it, but they put these weird things on like the cocktail, and the Tiki Monkey had some weird things, like you know, weird things on the side and on top, and you know, the garnishes and all that stuff. I went to a cocktail bar near my house here, and they had their special was this like um, clove Manhattan or something, and there I they served it to me. And it was just floating with like 30 cloves on the top. And I tried to take a sip and it's like that does not all sound these cloves good. got stuck in my lips. It was, that does yeah, not was sound like, good. Number eight is the most modernist cocktail place that I've ever been to. And I've not been to the Aviary in Chicago. It's called Bar Chef in Toronto. It's Frankie Solark's place. And they make these elaborate, truly elaborate cocktails. So, well, they have more. They have a couple of sections within the menu. And the, the main section that I was interested in was the super opulent grand cocktails that are about $30 and above. And they don't even make it at the bar. They have to make it in the kitchen. They'll bring it out. But it's super, super modernist. It's like if you went to Alinea hmm. and, you know, and just... They just created cocktails. It's like Alinea. It's like an a, a cocktail version of Alinea. And the people from Alinea also own Aviary. Um, yeah, I, I love the bar chef. And it's not in the top 100. I don't think he's ever been on that list. I've asked people who are on the list why bar chef's not on the list. And, you know, they just kind of... Maybe, and they, they think maybe that the modern, the truly modernist bars are kind of like falling off. Even Aviary's 
like they're not in the top 50 anymore. Mm-hmm. I think they're barely in the top 100. The pendulum has swung in yeah. the other direction. Yep. The Old Man, at number seven, from Hong Kong. A Hemingway-inspired bar. Sitting at the front of the bar is a, is a really beautiful, kind of interesting uh, painting or art artwork of, like, a, a picture of Hemingway himself. Huh. Um, and so, you know, Hemingway later in his life moved to Cuba and wrote The Old Man in the Sea and drank a lot of daiquiris. So is that what this bar is sort of based around? Uh, yeah, cocktails. Well, first of all, all the cocktails are named after works from Hemingway. Okay. And, and most of the cocktails have ingredients that Hemingway was inspired by or loved. So I, didn't, I didn't have a daiquiri. But I'm sure it was on the menu. They like nine or ten cocktails on the menu. Yeah. So I'm sh- I'm sure it was there. I just didn't have it. Um, but yeah, the old man. I'll I'd like to order a death in the afternoon. I wonder what was on there. <laughs> okay, go like, ahead. Sorry. Um, number six, five. We're on five six. already. No, we're six, on six. Yeah. Artesian bar. Um, Artesian bar is the only bar in the world that's been named the number one bar in the world four times. The the closest one is I think one or two bars have won it twice. Artesian bar won it four times on the you know the world. Is it bit. Artesian bar? A R T A R T E I E S I A N. Yeah, Artesian bar inside the Langham in London. Uh-huh. And um, a lot of people left during after winning number one. A lot of them just got poached, and <laughs> so it kind of fell totally fell off the list. Right, and it's still not back on the list. But they hired Remy Savage. From, I think he was from he came from Paris, one of the most pa- famous Paris bars, um, and I think he came from Little Red Door. And um, Remy's doing a really nice job with the cocktail menu. Anna Sebastian came from the American Bar at the Savoy. She's running the front of the house, and I love the current menu, which is cocktails inspired by important inve- events in your life. So like, they'd be like a cocktail inspired by your first kid. Or a cocktail inspired by your first... I'm just... Again, I, I'm just, you know, whatever. By the time you got married. Things like that. And so it's a, it's a cool concept. Hmm. And number five... Did it work for you? Did you take a sip and say, oh, yeah, there... Again, it's, you know... Buying so, my first car, it, it, I got it, it. it. It's so tenuous that you think... But it's still a cool concept. I appreciated it. I'm going back again, hopefully during summer. Hopefully they'll have a new, new menu. Number five is a more traditional bar, more classic. I think you'd like, I, I bet you've been there. Dante in New York City. Uh-huh. Have you been there? Yes. Negroni's. Classic. Yeah. That is a winner. And that's often in, in that top 50 bar list as well. Yeah, I think it's top 10. I think it's top 10. So what do you like top about it? You know what? It's a, this, I love the fact that I go in at 11 a.m. in the morning on a weekday and start drinking, which I do. <laughs> And like no one's there, no one bothers me, and that's what I hate about New York bars. Like most of them, they're just crowded, and it's not. I don't feel good when I go in there. Even worse when I leave. Whereas I love drinking when I want to drink. I want to drink at eleven a.m. and no one bothers me. No one's there, and they're really nice. Uh, service is spectacular. That bar is really cool. They have those. You know, when you, as you go to the bathroom, there's that one, like a cabinet full of, or I don't know, you call it antique libations yeah antique yeah okay and i I do love negronis i once had a 225 dollar negroni was it good uh we had a can in seattle and they made me a regular negroni and they made me the 225 dollar negroni i was able to try it right right side by side side by side 
And which one did you like more? I did like. The, I don't know if I. You know, I don't know if it was worth two hundred twenty-five dollars. What I don't know if it was worth two hundred twenty-five dollars, but it really was better. <laughs> the best of the two, and it was just really rich and deep. Maybe they made the the cheap one. Maybe they made it worse. You know, might have <laughs> just to make sure that wasn't unhappy. Um, sitting at number four is Carnival from Lima, Peru. Wow. Again, emphasis on creative original cocktails. Uh, with unusual ingredients, I walked in there. I think it was around two in the afternoon. Again, I love the fact that I could drink in the early afternoon, and no one was there. I was the only one in in Carnival, and it's it's just a gorgeous bar. I always get. I I also get. I'm also influenced by how pretty the bar is. Huh. The, the prettier the bar, Atlas. Did, Atlas is a gorgeous gorgeous bar in Singapore, but it didn't make my top ten because I don't like. I'm not the biggest fan of gin, but. That place is gorgeous. So I, again, I'm influenced by Carnival, which is a gorgeous bar, great service. Uh, my bartender was so nice and so you know, very forthcoming and walked me through the menu and let me try another drink. I mean, just caught me a drink just to see. He was like, "Try this, Gary. See how this one is." I said, "Oh, God, that's amazing too." And it's more modernist. They have a little modernist um, tinge to it. So I love. So Carnival. your best meal of 2018 and your fourth favorite bar in the world are both in Lima. Lima's, well, yeah, Lima's pretty good. But that's the only <laughs> bar I went to. Lima was Carnival. Huh. Uh, three is Bar Orchard from Tokyo. Like I told you before, I love fruit-based drinks. And what they do is they give you a bowl of fruit, and they say, pick a fruit. We'll make a cocktail from that fruit. And I, said, I, I just picked a bunch of fruits. And well, I, picked, I had like three or four. I mean, I went there more than once, actually, in Tokyo. So I, I, um, and I would just pick different fruits, and they'd make cocktails from that, that fruit. That's so cool. It is. Um, Michelle and Adam, local bartenders, said they saw the pictures and they said, Gary, they didn't take the stickers off the fruit. <laughs> That's kind of cheesy. I said, oh, I know. Well, what do you do? So, the, uh, that's really interesting. The, um, let me see. What fruit did you choose? I, for, I, I, I forgot which ones I chose. It, I know I chose a melon one. Did I, chose, did I choose a watermelon? I don't know. Can't remember. It's been a while. <laughs> I tried like four of them. Did your parents run an orchard? No, just it was vegetable a farm, farm. Vegetable farm. Yeah, but I hate vegetables, so I wonder if they, were, if they did a fruit farm. I would <laughs> like they give you a crudite plate and like <laughs> pick one of these. We'll make a crappy cocktail. For <laughs> Number two. All right, now we're getting up there, folks. Is the Conant? Oh London. yeah, the Conant. The Conant Bar. Yeah. We've texted. Yeah. I've texted you when you're at the Conant Bar. Yes. It's, you know what it is? It's that martini. It's like a $33 martini or something. Table side service. Oh, that's nice. And they, you know, you get to pick out, you know, the different types. Do they give you like a shaker of extra martini to add to your, no when you're done? It's no. just one martini. But it's so, the, the, the table side service is so elaborate on the, on the, on that martini. But I, I mean, I, I think last year I went like eight times. Wow. Because I, I was, I stay in Mayfair. Yeah. And so. Um, it was just convenient to like, walk. it took me like five minutes to walk there from my hotel. So I would just drink at the Conant. Again, you can drink in the afternoon. No one bothers you because no one's there. Is it really worth 30 whatever dollars for a martini? <laughs> <laughs> for, you know, to do it once because of the table side service? Yes. Yeah, sure. But just like, is it really worth, is any Negroni worth $225? No, no. All right, drum roll, number one. Well, okay, first let me say that the number, 
I, I did have a different number one, but this, it went in was Dandelion in London, but um, the owner, Ryan, is closing it oh. in, a, in a month and a half. Okay. And he does this all the time. He like closes it, then he'll reconcept it and open another bar in the same location. Hmm. He just gets bored or something like that. He did it with uh, his, the bar at the Hawks in London. His investors must be crazy about him. <laughs> he finishes number one, and it is number one in the world currently. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. He's like, oh, I'm going to close it. Sorry about that. <laughs> but my, my number one is not Danny. It can't be. It was going to be Dandelion, but it's not Dandelion because they're closing in a month. It's Manhattan from Singapore. Wow. You just went. Yeah, I just went. The, the, the menu is divided up into eras, of new, five different eras within New York City's history. And there's like four or five cocktails per era that highlight that history, that, that era. And um, that's one part of the menu, and that's the meat of the menu. Then the other part of the menu, there's something called, where the, where the barrel-aged cocktails are, and that's called the Rick House. And I got um, Sophia from Manhattan, who's one of the bartenders, showed me around um, the bar. And you think, oh, well, it must not take it very long. It's a bar. No, it took a while. That place is huge. <laughs> they have like a, a room called the Rickhouse Room, where all the barrel-aged cocktails are. And it's huge. Well, relatively large. There's, there's an ingredients room where they just have all the different ingredients for, for all the cocktails. They have different PDRs and... Private dining rooms, things like that, baller rooms, <laughs> uh, and you know, again, it was just beyond the cocktails. It's just um, the service, so exemplary. Yeah, and you just think, oh my god, why? Why are they so obsessed with New York City and Singapore? I don't know. I mean, I know there's a rich cocktail history to New York, but is that it? Well, that's maybe probably it. that's probably it. But it's a gorgeous bar. You gotta go. Okay, so you you heard it here first. Grab your fifty thousand dollars and hit the road and go, go to Manhattan yeah. in Singapore. <laughs> um, just really quickly before we move on, you know, for people who maybe will never get to go to a cocktail bar like this, or you know, live in a place that doesn't have any, you know, what's the generally what's the experience like across all of these places? Like you know, compared to you go in a bar, you order a beer, you sit down. That's you know, that's it's pretty simple and easy. Everyone's done that. What about what about going to one of these one of these top ten bars of yours? You know what I, you know what I've noticed about you know the bars that I have on my list is the care and thought that goes into each cocktail, uh, and that's it, it. Really shows with these the world's best cocktail bars. I think I've been to like forty of the top one hundred on the list. And just, to, I'm just, I'm just, kind of, I was just kind of curious, like how different are they really? The bars, for example, here, like a good craft cocktail bar in yeah. Portland, right? Yeah, and it, it's just the care and thought that goes into each cocktail, hmm. and um, and also the the service really, truly is significantly different. Even like the James Beard, well, you know what, you know the James Beard has their category called outstanding bar programs right and they're all u.s based of course obviously u.s based bars and even like we went to the anvil together so did did, did you notice the, i mean anvil is in the top 100 on this year's world's top it's in the 80s i think it's number 80 or so did you notice any difference between the anvil in houston and bars here um 
I could see Anvil being in Portland. I thought that they were, you know, there, there are some Portland bars that have a reputation for being like a little bit about themselves and, you know, they won't acknowledge you until they're ready to acknowledge you, which is cool. Like Anvil, we walked in, they said, what's up, even though they were making, you know, they're doing other stuff. They handed us menus across this busy bar. Like I, as a customer really appreciated that. And then of course they also had this like Añejo Cuba Libre on tap. That was just like so fantastic. And, you know, it just tasted like a sort of aged Coke and rum, you know, on the rocks with a lime. And it was like, yeah, every bar in America should have that. <laughs> well, in, I don't know. I've, but I don't know. I, I, but I could see Anvil being here too. I could see some bar owner here being like, hey, guys, let's make an effort to acknowledge every customer. And I know there are bars in Portland that do that. So, Yeah. But you know, you know what? I, I notice the difference between U.S.-based bars and bars outside of this country. Like, I think New York City is an overrated cocktail city. I mean, though I have Dante in, 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 in my top ten. And I love Nomad. Nomad should you know was really close to being in the top 10 no i mean and it's the service with nomad too and leo uh robichek is doesn't you know does a fantastic job with the cocktail program there and all the other nomad bars around the country but i i, I do notice the difference in service between between 90 98 percent of the bars in the united states and the bars out the best bars from outside of the, the outside of the united states Okay, well, let's uh, move on. We have a couple of other non-food categories we wanted to talk about. Um, Gary wanted to. Gary wants me to talk him into watching TV shows, like prestige television. What's, what are we calling this segment? What is Michael watching? Okay, what is Michael watching? Okay, so well, I'll do this quickly. I'm, I'm currently watching True Detective Season 3, and I believe you're actually watching it too. Yeah, I didn't see one and two. Although with season one, I watched the first episode, the last episode, then a Wikipedia. (laughs) What happened? Uh, One was really fun and great. It got super weird and metaphysical. Uh, Matthew McConaughey was really on one, and Woody Harrelson's great. And it gets the last episode is like really trippy and weird, um, or maybe the second to last. Um, Season two went completely off the rails. It was like... uh, Is it bad? You know, people were defending it as like campy noir, L.A. campy noir. And I totally get that. Um, It starred Colin Farrell and uh, Rachel McAdams. And um, they're sort of like... And there's one other guy, too, his name I don't remember really bland looking fella but he uh the the three of them are like you know trying to take down this like uh, uh ring of sex worker you know bringing in sex workers from outside the country it's like it was super convoluted there's also a whole thing about high-speed rail like land rights in central california and like they were so sloppy with all the details like they i think they, they're supposed to be in like fresno or bakersfield or some like you know central valley dry town and they they're like clearly in napa or ohio or somewhere like wine country like they didn't even bother to like try to get the locations right like it felt like the other two one and three are both period pieces um one and three actually sort of both take place during multiple timelines one it's two timelines and the the new one that's going on right now has actually has three which is getting a little complicated sometimes but 
the second season they just were like straight ahead like right now i feel like it actually should have been a period piece maybe the 80s or 70s even oh two was in the but, set current in the current time two was set in the current time yeah and it was oh. just one timeline and it's, it was the the pilot or sorry the first episode and, and i think the last one were directed by a guy whose previous job was working on the fast and the furious movies so i don't know that he really like i think he gets action right but i don't think he really got details or or mood right um and none of it really made any sense i didn't love it some you like the current do. season the first two episodes of this season were like my favorite for two episodes of the entire run and i think that's because they were um directed by a guy named jeremy saulnier who i have seen a couple of his movies he made a movie that's actually set in oregon called the green room that's like a poorer movie about this like punk band that's traveling around and is going to do a show outside of portland and when they get there they realize it's like a neo-nazi club and (laughs) they decide to sing a song like bashing the crowd you know bashing the nazis and then they uh and then they get locked in and they have to fight their way out. And oh, um, Patrick Stewart, who's, uh, you know, Jean-Luc Picard plays the like neo-Nazi ringleader slash meth dealer. It's a phenomenal movie. Um, I never even heard of it. Yeah. yeah it's, the, it's, I highly it sounds recommend funny. It's, it's funny in parts. It's sort of a horror movie, gruesome in parts too. And you know, the, uh, that director, he's like really great at style. And so those first two episodes of the new season, which uh, stars Marshala Ali, uh, who won an Oscar for Moonlight, and uh, Stephen Dorff. Those two guys are like the new Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. The first two episodes are fantastic. Then that director and the writer, Nick Pizzolatto, apparently got into a disagreement about the way he was presenting the show, even though I thought it was fantastic. And so they brought in some hack, um, you know, some like hired gun to do episode three, five, six, seven. And Nick Pizzolatto himself decided, okay, I'm going to step in and direct four, which came out already, and eight, which is the season finale. And four was like easily the worst episode so far in the whole run of True Detective. Um, It was just, the framing was super boring. It's like he included every single line. There was no killing your darlings, as they say. He just, you know, anything he wrote was going to be on the screen. Um, The characters seemed more hollow. Like I didn't. I watched the episode. I said, "Why is why is this not good anymore?" And then I googled and I found all that stuff out. So anyway, uh, you're watching it too. How far into it are you? I've seen all the current episodes. You've seen five as well. Yeah, yeah. Did you notice a dip, or was that no? I did not notice a dip. I I like. I I just love Ali's performance. He's fantastic. So it's so mesmerizing. Him and he plays like a, a, a. he plays a younger guy just back from the Vietnam War. He plays a, a sort of burnt out, uh, uh, you know, ten, 10 years later, he's burnt out. And then in the modern era, he's an old man. And he's just like really fantastic in all three of them. His his old man in, in particular, like it's really, it kind of sets the standard for actors playing old people. Like that can go so wrong so easily. And Dorf is, Stephen Dorf is doing, just, I didn't know he could act. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen a lot of films, but I really didn't know he can act, and he's he's doing an exemplary job. Um, you want to talk a little bit about the NBA? For we always end our episode talking about sports. So, actually, as we sit here, we're just a couple of hours past the trade deadline. Trade, line, trade deadline. Um, you know, the big news all week was that Anthony Davis was going to potentially be traded from New Orleans to LA. It didn't happen. I was saying I think probably the biggest trade that happened was Tobias Harris going from the Clippers to the 76ers, which actually isn't really that big a trade, but it does mean that 
Philadelphia now has an incredible starting five. Um, JJ, JJ Reddick, Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, and um, Jimmy Butler is their starting five. Those guys are all potential all uh, you know potential all stars in the East. But they but they don't have any bench. That's, they don't have much of a bench. That's, yeah. that's the issue. And last year, and I guess this is somehow interconnected with that, is they got Ilyasov and Bellinelli um, after they were bought out by their former teams. Right. And I think that's what's going to... There were only... There were minor trades here and there. Um, the Philadelphia got better. Gasol is now with the Toronto Raptors. Valenzuelas went the other way, along with some other pieces. I wonder, like, with the with the Sixers now, with this impressive starting five, let's assume they pick up a bench guy or two in the buyout market. Or do you think they're a legitimate contender um, to beat the Warriors? I mean, I think they're definitely contenders to win the East. Well, but. you know what? Actually, the, the question, you, you're right about the second part. Are they, can they win the East? Yeah. They don't, I, I still think there's still a chemistry issue with that team because Simmons can't shoot free throws. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's an issue when you get to the end of the game. Then Butler becomes the man. But then, then Embiid and Simmons, may, I've heard, may not like the fact that Butler's like wants to be the man. So there's some I think there might be some chemistry issues with that team team. On the surface, they look to be the I mean, maybe the most talented team outside of maybe Boston in in the East. But God, Toronto looks really I mean with Gasol yeah. as center. That I mean, they look really good. Yeah. Gasol, uh, Kawhi Leonard and Kyle Lowry. That's pretty good, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean and Boston's playing better. I think they've won nine in the last ten games. If Gordon Hayward actually starts becoming Gordon Hayward again, I mean, given how how severe that injury was, it's gonna it was gonna take him time to get back to being where he was. He may never get back to where he was. I think this, even though everything you said is right, and the Sixers are like three or four games out of first place in the East. I think they are now the favorites. So then the other fun story, and then we'll wrap things up here is a. Uh, uh, like at the beginning of the season, I made a small wager with a friend, not on the pod, uh, that the Lakers would not make the playoffs. And <laughs> come Christmas Day, LeBron goes to San Francisco or to Oakland. He uh, so LeBron goes to Oakland. He um, injures his he groin. He did injure his groin, but they did win that game, and I believe they were third fourth. in the third or fourth third, in the West, fourth Western West, Conference. Yeah. And it looked like they were just going to coast to. A, a playoff spot. Now, flash forward a little bit over a month later, LeBron's not even really fully healthy. He's just gotten back a few games ago. He didn't play against the Warriors in the most recent game. The whole starting five is going to be thought they were going to be traded whole, for Anthony Davis. So now they've got that looming over their head. Some of the players removed Lakers references from their social media accounts. And they are now sitting in, I believe, in 10th place. So not just out of the playoff hunt, but they've got, they'd have to leapfrog the Kings and the Clippers to get into the playoff hunt. And the Clippers with that Tobias Harris move, a lot of people were saying that trade was a sign that they're going to tank the rest of the way, partially because the Clippers uh, draft pick uh, this year goes to Boston it unless it's in the lottery. So oh. the Clippers have an incentive not to make the playoffs this year, a pretty decent incentive because it could be like a 10, 11, 12 pick. Right. Uh, and you don't want to give that to Boston for nothing. Right. If they if they wait a couple years, it becomes a second rounder or so, or two second rounders. Um, so I, I'm kind of assuming the Clippers are going to be out of it. But you know, the Kings made a couple of moves before the trade deadline. I feel like they are going to really going to be pushing. It's going to be hard for the Lakers, even though 
LeBron, you never want to really want to bet against LeBron. I did, and it's been one of the most fun bets I've ever made in my life. How about I'm making really enjoying a, it. a bet with me? I, I say Philadelphia does not come out of the East. I'll take that bet. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll pick Philly. I mean, it's like one of three horses, right? So One of four? Shake on it. Dollar bet. Got it. All right. Philly to win the East. And you have the field? I have the field. It's oh, tough. Okay. Damn it. Well, there's only, that there only three teams. There's only like two or three teams. All right, everyone. This has been a fun episode of Walk-In's Welcome. Uh, we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks after Gary gets back from Bangkok. Bye-bye.